the start of that program and then heading into that race, my power numbers increased significantly. And I just found that enthusiasm to be on the bike again. I could respond to attacks in races and I felt like I could read the races a lot better. Like my senses were more attuned to what was happening around me because I had more energy. You know, they talk about flow in a lot of athletic pursuits and it felt like I was just getting closer and closer to that state. Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. My name is Steph Gaskell. I'm an accredited sports dietitian, researcher and do some lecturing in sports nutrition at Monash University in Melbourne. And I'm joined as always by my fellow sports dietitian, lecturer, researcher, Dr. Alan McCubbin. How are you, Alan? I'm all right, Steph. Uh, been sort of trapped inside the house the last few days. It's been absolutely miserable here, and you would have been the same. Ooh. Just been raining yeah. on and off and freezing cold. And it's like it tempted us a couple of weeks ago with all this gorgeous weather we were talking about on the podcast, getting outside, yeah. going to the beach, all that kind of stuff. And now it's just done a complete 180 on us in the last three or four days. It's Yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> so you've been locked up with the kids? Yeah, pretty much. So, yeah, that that's, is what it yeah. is. But I finished my last bit of exam marking and therefore my last marking for the year, apart from maybe some moderation, um, last night. So, yeah, big celebration right. there. So I just got to wait for someone else to finish their part of the marking and then put it all together and finalise the marks for the students. And then the academic year, from a teaching point of view, is done. Woohoo! Yeah. Party. Exactly right. Party for the teachers and party for the students. Yeah, exactly right. Mm-hmm. And how about you? What have you been up to? Yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. Jeez, that's a good question. Um, yeah, running, just yeah, getting some consistency back with my training and, and strength, trying to build some big old calf muscles so I can beat, um, you know, Chris at, um, in the clinic at Monash. <laughs> He's got some pretty decent calf muscles. So I'm always like, I'm going to get some, some muscles like you. So I remember that conversation that's... from about three years ago. He's still working on it. <laughs> I'm still working on it. <laughs> I'm doing this, uh, I think they call it like a German style of um, training apparently. So I'm doing like lots of sets of um, some um, calf raises. So we'll see how we go, Alan. Yeah. If you, next time I, I see you, like when I see your eyes bulging, um, that'll be a good sign. Mm, well, except that I can't <laughs> see your calves from here. The webcam is not that clever. <laughs> so yeah that's that's about that's about it um yeah back in back in the lab and yeah just getting closer and closer to hopefully i was gonna say you just about finished your data collection for the phd oh i hope so but you know you always get um little things that pop up so unfortunately my participant that was meant to come in this week um was helping for a, a massive race and um ended up drinking some dirty water and had bad gastro so you know that wiped out and then another participant wiped that out so as we know that happens so um Mm. yeah fingers crossed though it uh it'll come together soon yeah um yeah and i I know there was um oh there's a a big ultra trail race this weekend um it's called the um down um, near, I think, Mount Feathertop. Um, oh, was it a great southern endurance run? 
Yeah, Great Southern Endurance Race. Yeah. Um, they had some wild weather and um, mm. and then had to change the, the course. Yep. And uh, had a friend that went down and apparently, like, it was already going to be hilly, but then the way it started, it was just apparently, like, I think even worse for the legs. And um, I think, like, 50% of the... Um, athletes participants um you know dnf'd mm. yeah yep. for, for both of those and a shout out to uh our former podcast guest kelly emerson who i think won the race yeah kelly um and blake uh so i think blake i don't know if kelly they did i know blake did the 28ks blake house um and um good friend of mine and um yeah kelly did kelly do the 28 i'm not sure actually yeah i reckon she would have done the 28 and um and also we had um also alice um mcnamara was um the med sports med um for, for that as well yeah. so there was a lot of logistics in that yep absolutely mm. awesome yeah cool all right, um, let's uh, talk about what we're going to talk about today. So um, on the long munch, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes um, ask and talk about in their training sessions or it might be um, in the um, recovery um, cafe brunches that they have. Uh, and it's kind of the, the common questions that you might have about um, nutrition. And what we try and do is um, break it down, invite a guest um, expert uh, or athlete to add the perspective. And so we normally have a part A, which will have the researcher or practitioner, and then a part B, which will be an athlete or a coach, and will um, provide a nice practical perspective on that question that we're answering. So today's episode, we're up to episode 24C, and the question is, can I underfuel my training? And we have uh, the lovely Sophie Mackay, Alan. Yeah, absolutely. So we don't often have a C episode, uh, but we thought in this case, as we mentioned at the end of last week's podcast, um, Sophie's story I think is really interesting. And it's also good to have, I guess, a, a bit of a flip side. We've sort of talked about the negative consequences of you know, underfueling training, but also I think Sophie's story is a great one because it talks about what happens in the recovery phase of that and what happens when you get back on track and how things can come back together. Uh, and so I think it's a really nice story to kind of round off this topic. So we decided, why not? Um, have have her story in here uh, and Sophie was actually a, a former teammate of last week's podcast guest Kate Perry they they rode together for specialized women's racing for a few years so yeah mm. it's great to hear her story as well yep yep mm. and uh, as we've mentioned for a, a few weeks on the podcast now we've got a really special one lined up um, for next week because this is our 49th episode and it's also our 51st week of podcasting mm-hmm. um so we have our one-year anniversary and our 50th episode all falling next week. So really excited about that, really looking forward to it. Um, and, yeah, we'll uh, maybe tell listeners a little bit more about that at the end. Yeah, yep, yep. We'll give it a, a, a bigger hint, you reckon? Yep. Yep, nice. Uh, and so social media um, shout-outs and um, questions that we've had uh, during the week. Uh, 
Lou Derricks has, um, has found uh, found the episode that we did with Kate Perry really um, informative and and useful. So so thank you for that. And um, and also Haley George from Deneen Runners. Um, she um, was kind enough to share the episode. And um, Georgie Howe uh, is one of Kate's teammates at Knights Love Me, Love You Racing. And um, she also um, really enjoyed the episode too. So, um, yeah, thank you for letting us know that because um, it does help, um, I don't know, kind of confirm that we're perhaps answering some, some common questions and, and, it, and that it is being useful. So um, please mm. keep that feedback coming in and please do ask us any questions that you, that you have. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's it's pretty safe to say that the, this topic that we've had in terms of you know does lean equal faster, and then can I underfuel my training, which really go hand in hand. Um, I think from the from the feedback we've been getting through social media, it's clear to see that this is a, a topic that people are really interested in um, and have really appreciated hearing different perspectives about both sort of scientific expertise perspectives and then also some some lived experiences from athletes that have been through that themselves. So uh, you know, it's great great to, to hear that feedback um, and certainly helps us in terms of you know what other topics that you know we, we organize for people down the track as well yeah and um, yeah and you know as people are aware obviously you can listen to this on various podcast platforms um, Apple podcasts Google podcasts Spotify uh, podbean uh, there are others as well but they're probably the main ones uh, we actually have had two new fast hour reviews on Apple podcasts this week so a big thanks to whoever left those it's really great to see those come in and um, it helps I guess spread the message about the podcast and, and get some really helpful hopefully information for runners, cyclists and triathletes out there to, to even more people. So thanks very much for, for whoever it is that, that uh, clicked on those little five-star ratings for us. And, uh, yeah, if anyone else wants to give us a rating or review, we'd, we'd really appreciate that as well. So why don't we get stuck into this one? Because um, I'm excited for it and I know a lot of um, listeners will be um, keen to listen to this one. Um, so, Al, um, I know that you've worked um, with Sophie, um, so I'll let you introduce uh, Sophie to the, to the listeners. Yeah, absolutely. So, as I mentioned before, Sophie Mackay, uh, well, she's actually retired from racing now uh, as a cyclist. Um, she lives in beautiful Wagga in regional New South Wales. Um, but she entered the NRS back in, I think it was about 2013 off the top of my head with Boss Racing and then moved across to Specialised Women's Racing and rode for them for a few years. Um, but yeah, has been out of the sport for three or four years in terms of competing herself. Um, but she is now a cycling coach at the Southern Sports Academy, which is one of those regional sports academies in country New South Wales um, and works with um, a lot of the junior cyclists there. So great to see that she's still involved in the sport in a, in a coaching capacity now. Um, but yeah, so this was a, a really interesting one and, and certainly one when we started the podcast, I thought straight away, oh, it'd be great to get Sophie on because I think it's a really fantastic story. Uh, has you know, a really clear sort of challenge that she faced, but then also a really great story of how she was able to overcome that uh, and regain form and actually end up, you know, better than she was going into it so uh, I think it's a it's a really nice story uh, it's got a really great ending um, but also you know a lot of lessons learned along the way in terms of 
um, you know, underfueling and, and that relative energy deficiency in sport that we've talked about over the last few weeks, which is a, obviously a really important topic. And as I think we say in this interview, um, I think what was really interesting for me personally working with Sophie is that the whole model of relative energy deficiency in sport as a concept uh, was only about six months old when Sophie was first referred to me. And so, um, you know, the, the female athlete triad that we've, we've talked about as well, that had existed for, for quite a quite a length of time before that, but it was quite limited in its scope in terms of the particular issues that people were looking out for. So for me, Sophie was actually the very first person I sort of worked with looking through that lens of what we now call relative energy deficiency in sport and looking at all of those different issues that, that Margot talked about a couple of weeks ago on the podcast. So uh, a really big learning curve for myself. Um, but fantastic to work with um, Dr. Peter Braun, who Sophie mentions in this interview. Uh, he was really on the ball with it. Um, and yeah, it sort of, it was one of the first people, athletes that I'd work with that kind of really sparked my interest in this area. Um, and, and as you'll see, you know, it was a, it was a great outcome with Sophie. So um, maybe a little bit of a shorter interview than some of the ones we've done before, but I think some, some real gems in there and some, some great, um, Great lessons learned from from Sophie's story for everyone out there listening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, let's get stuck into it. Yeah, awesome. Let's do it. Sophie Mackay, welcome to The Long Munch. How are things with you? Oh, very well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. No worries. Thanks for, for being on. Now, people that have been involved with um, cycling or followed the, I guess, the domestic racing scene here in Australia will probably go, Sophie, where do I know that name from? Um, because you did ride for a few years in the National Road Series with Specialised Women's Racing. Uh, you also had a brief stint, I think, from memory in America um, in about 2016 or so with um, Hagen's Berman. Um, but do you want to tell us a bit about how you got involved with cycling in the first place? Certainly. I always loved sports as a kid um, and we always had bikes and just we live in have lived in country towns our whole life so we'd kick about on the bikes a bit with friends um, and when I hit my teenage years sport sort of fell away a bit um, and then when I was in my 20s I was living in WA and a friend over there um, Shana she simply said to me Sophie I think you need a hobby and I ride bikes <laughs> <laughs> um so I bought my first adult bike when I was about 22 and started riding then yeah right so certainly a bit of a, a latecomer to the NRS scene when considering oh, a lot of people come in at sort of 17 18 very much so and I think my first NRS race I would have been 28 or 29 mm. um when I joined the NRS um so yeah certainly a latecomer to the sport um but I really loved my time in it and racing with specialised women's racing was a fantastic experience. I found the team, the whole team environment really supportive and the other riders were just fantastic to be um, at every race with. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Um, now, obviously, you've been out of the NRS scene for a few years now. What's what's life for you like these days? What are you up to? A little less bike riding, um, <laughs> actually very little bike riding, Um fair bit more um, other activities like running and yoga, um, working and doing, nowadays I do some coaching as well. So we have the Southern Sports Academy in Wagga and I coach, I'm an assistant coach there with uh, the cycling athletes and our local club as well. I go down every Monday night and coach however many kids turn up on the night, Yeah, which is great fun. Yeah, awesome. 
Okay. Do you miss the racing side of things? I miss aspects of it, but not <laughs> the entire side. Um, I will admit, I, by the end of it, it felt a little bit like Groundhog Day and yep. the travel was very tiring as well. Hmm. Um, you'd sort of take your Friday off, travel to the race, arrive, race couple of races on Saturday and Sunday and then drive straight home Sunday afternoon and be back at work on Monday. Um, and it does just take a toll on um, your energy and also your enthusiasm by the end. Yeah, absolutely. And I think obviously coming into the sport a little bit later than others, I mean, I guess a lot of people are racing NRS while they're still at uni and they can kind of juggle uni around the racing commitments and things like that. But you're working full time through that period. Was on look, I was exceptionally lucky. I had a wonderful employer um, at Charleston University who really supported me in that and allowed me to take flex time where I needed it. Um, but it was still very much a balancing act. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So our uh, topic today is: Can I underfuel my training? Um, uh, so we had uh, Margot Rogers um, talk to us about about that, um, and then you know we've got a couple of. Um, of cyclists on so um yeah so last week um we had kate perry um and then yeah and then um now we're talking to you your story is um really interesting um i guess um in terms of the fueling um partly because it's got this clearly defined start and end point but also the nature of how you ended up with low energy availability and what we call REDS, so relative energy deficiency in sport. Can you tell us a bit about how it, it kind of all started for you and when you realised that there was a problem? It's a bit hard to identify the exact point. It was, I guess it was one of those sort of slow downhill slopes that just speeds up more and more quickly towards the end. Um, and I would say I started racing in the NRS in 2013 and I would say I entered the NRS in a very healthy position, but perhaps on reflection, I'd say probably halfway through that year, getting towards the end of that year, I was probably starting to feel tired. Um, I can remember at the national capital tour that year, uh, chasing a break and thinking, oh, I just don't have it in the legs. Mm -hmm. Um, and then at the end of that year, we had a selection camp held at the AIS for um, the, a national team to go overseas, a development squad. Um, I participated in that and loved the experience, um, but I found that quite taxing on my body as well. Um, there was I actually ended up in hospital while we were, we were there because I got extremely cold on a very long ride. Mm-hmm. Um so by the time we finished the ride, I, I couldn't unclip my pedals um, and had to someone had to catch me as I came off the bike essentially. Um, I guess that was probably the point at which it really um, became quite obvious that I had to start uh, looking at things differently. And then as I moved into 2014 subsequent to the camp, things just didn't get back on track really. Um and I started to feel the lethargy um, just became greater and greater and greater to the point where um, I would say sometime in 2014 I can remember sort of going, okay, well, I'm just going to go and do a recovery ride with a local group here and it, 
it is ridden as a recovery ride. It's not a taxing ride. Mm. And I came home and just I was exhausted and I thought, well, this is just not where I want to be. Mm. And that's when I sort of started to think, okay, I need to get some help from other people. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, and so when when did you, how did you go about that process of, of seeking out help? Um, I was quite lucky. I spoke to a good friend of mine, Rachel, um, just about where I was at. And she was a bit of a mentor for me at the time. She'd been racing in the NRS um, for a longer period than I had. And I just described what I was experiencing. And she happened to have a couple of uh, names of doctors, uh, sports doctors. She's based in Melbourne and they were also based in Melbourne. And she sent those names through to me. And I went from there and started contacting um, some sports doctors in late 2014. I got in contact with uh, Dr. Peter Braun um, and he referred me on to Alan. Oh, the wonderful Alan. It's when he comes in. Yes. (laughs) Um, And so, yeah, so can you tell us what was identified in terms of – so was it, uh, were you told, okay, well, your experience, you're not getting in enough energy for what you're doing? And was that due to, um, we've spoken about it with Margot, like how I guess reds can come to the scene where some people may um, intentionally underfuel, um, but then there's um, athletes that can do it unintentionally and, you know, the training load just creeps up and, um, and they're just, you know, we don't realise how much energy we need or we don't feel that we don't have the appetite. Um, what what do you think it was was for you? Um, I'd say it was that creeping up very much. So um, I thought I was eating a sufficient amount and I also I think as that creeps up you start to reflect and you go, okay, well, something's wrong. So then you try other things. So you might change one aspect of, say, your diet because you're going, well, I'm tired Maybe it's this or that or the other. But ultimately it was the entire diet not being sufficient for the training that I was doing. Mm -hmm. And my training did fluctuate within that period as well. It got to a point where I had to really back my training off significantly. I took probably at least four months um, where I was just doing more recovery rides and just trying to maintain what fitness I had because I'm – at that point, whenever I pushed myself too far, I'd end up in um, a fairly significant hole and I didn't have the enthusiasm for it at that point because my energy was so low as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing I guess that's interesting on reflection is when we think about um, relative energy deficiency, there's all the physical signs, mm-hmm. but, you know, my menstrual function was fine. I had no issues with that. Um, my bone health... I did get a DEXA scan at one stage and they said I was just within the osteopenia range. So it didn't really say there's something glaringly obviously wrong here. But until you get that professional help, you don't really know what signs you're looking for either. Like I could get blood tests, but I wouldn't know what I was looking for. So um, that's why I really realised that I needed someone else to assist. Yep, yep. And um and so I guess I'll bring in Alan here if I can. Um, so, um, yeah, what, what did you kind of identify when you were working with Sophie, Alan? Yeah, well, it probably wasn't so much me, more, more Peter Braun because yep. 
he'd worked with Sophie, for, I think, for a couple of months before sort of I got involved, and um, he'd done all the, you know, organised all the blood tests and the DEXA scan and all those sorts of things. So uh, I think from memory on the blood test, you know, some of those hormones were a bit low that you sometimes see suppressed with with relative energy deficiency. So, I mean, as you said, Sophie, it wasn't to the stage of, of you know, full-blown amenorrhea, mm. um, but, mm. you know, the hormones were sort of trending in that direction. So, um, yeah, I think from from his point of view, it was clear that they're that was probably likely to be the issue. And um, I know we talked um, a couple of weeks ago with Margot about that, um, about a paper that's just recently been published saying, you know, is it overtraining or is it relative underfueling? You know, is overtraining syndrome the same as relative energy deficiency? Are they just two different ways to express the same thing or are they actually two completely distinct entities? Um, and, and it's not clear, but it is clear, I think, that sometimes it gets blamed on overtraining syndrome where it's probably more the, the relative energy deficiency. Um, and I think, you know, it was it was great that Peter had that hunch, you know, quite early on that that was the issue here, um, referred on to me, and then we were able to start looking at, at the dietary side of things. But, I mean, I think by the time that, um, that, that I started working with Sophie, I think, Sophie, from memory, you were already at that stage where you'd really backed off your training to just the recovery rides. So when we started planning the, the fueling side of things, we didn't have to, you know, go up and down across the week for different training sessions because all the training sessions were, you know, just um, super easy recovery rides at that time. Yep, that was definitely the case. I just couldn't handle anything beyond that at that point. Yeah. So it's just a matter of, I guess, trying to ensure dietary adequacy there, improve that energy availability to, to try and get... Um, that ability to train and recover back up um, and, and sort of recover that sense of fatigue that was, uh, and I think that, you know, from memory, that was the big thing when, when I first sat down with you, Sophie, was just, I'm just so tired all the time. I just can't get through any sessions, can't recover from sessions. Um, and so that's that's the place that we started from. Yeah, I think I'd lost my zest for life a bit as well. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and we talked to... Um, Kate Perry, who's a former teammate of yours, actually, uh, about this last week as well. And she said, you know, the same thing. In those stages where she was underfueling, one of the things that she noticed that's in that model of relative energy deficiency is the impact psychologically. Mm. Um, and that, you know, for her, it wasn't necessarily that she was depressed per se, but more that, I guess, your ability just to cope with the unexpected or stress and things like that, you just have a much lower tolerance for those sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. The way she described it is she, she didn't have a buffer like yeah yeah yep yep yeah and I think there's other activities that usually keep your life in balance as well when you're in focusing on an athletic pursuit like you know those other social activities you just the energy for them just isn't there either so your life becomes exceptionally focused on this one thing that just doesn't feel like it's going very well Mm. Mm -hmm. and how long did it take um do you think for you to start feeling like you were um recovering better and you had more energy yeah as soon as I started increasing those calories I started to notice a difference just in my everyday energy within a few weeks really um and for me that was really the thing that highlighted that this was the right track to be going on was increasing the overall energy across the entire diet rather than looking at specific aspects of the diet um, because it just wasn't supporting me and the life I was living. Yeah, yeah. I think it was really interesting too, like thinking back about it, um, you know, earlier before we started recording, 
I mean, that, that actual concept, that term REDS or relative energy deficiency in sport, that actually didn't exist prior to March 2014. So, you know, as a practitioner, you know, Sophie was one of the really one of the first people that I'd ever seen come across that technically had that that term, so to speak. I mean, we, we obviously had the female athlete triad that had, had been around for, you know, 15, 20 years before that. Um, but that was a very clear sort of menstrual function bone health. And as Sophie said, those weren't really major challenges for her at the time. Um, so, you know, if you only had that lens to look at it through, we might have potentially missed what was going on. But because that REDS model had been published in March of that year, and it was only, what, nine months later, 10 months later yeah. that we, we started working on this, um, it was just, yeah, really good timing that we could see this sort of model more broadly and think, oh, hang on, this is probably an energy availability issue here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and when you kind of got back into, into racing, um, what did you um, see in terms of your performance and, re- and recovery? Oh, it was like chalk and cheese compared to where I had been. Um, I can remember the first race that I did um, after starting working with Alan and it was at Battle on the Border in 2015. And I remember contesting one of the sprints and thinking um, it was an intermediate sprint but I'd come in second in it and that for me to even be there at that point in the race and then to be able to um, come in second in a sprint and it was against um, Kimberly Wells who is a renowned sprinter it really boosted my confidence in the whole approach and I can recall actually at that race meeting with a former coach of mine and saying asking him to come on back on board as my coach because it gave me the confidence to think okay if I can perform like that there then I think I can start looking at training you know and having those long-term goals again. Mm -hmm. Yep yep and did you find um, uh, your power like what other things changed for you, power output and um, body composition, that stuff sort of changed for you as well? Definitely. Um, I would say prior to beginning the the work with Alan, my body composition, um, I became a lot more toned and probably leaner as well um, whilst I was working with Alan. Um, And I think, you know, when you're within that red space and you're going through um, that really high fatigue um, and all those sort of difficulty concentrating mm. and things like that, you don't really think, oh, if I eat more, mm. I'm going to see those positive impacts on my body composition mm. and also um, just in my uh, psychological state really. Mm. Um, and it did have a huge difference and I've forgotten what the rest of your question was. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. And what about <laughs> um, power Power output? Did that? Thank yeah. you. Um, I definitely saw my power output increase significantly um, between across the course of 2015, really. From the beginning, um, I couldn't tell you where it was right at the beginning um, other than to say because that was when I was just sort of, I guess, at the depths mm-hmm. of it and we I wasn't looking at power numbers. It was just get on the bike and just ride if yep. you can. Um, but by June or July, um, I met with um, my coach, Andrew, we discussed the training program um, and I told him at that meeting that I wanted to target the national criterium in 2016 um, and I went into that meeting feeling confident in saying that was my target and he wrote me a program and between the start of that program 
and then heading into that race, my power numbers increased significantly. And I just um, found that uh, enthusiasm to be on the bike mm-hmm. again. I could respond uh, in races. I could respond to attacks in races and I could, it's probably touching back again on that psychological aspect, is I felt like I could read the races a lot better. Like my senses were more attuned to what was happening around me because I had more energy. Um, so I could watch riders. I knew how to um, knew how to read the race. And I guess it's just, you know, they talk about flow in a lot of athletic pursuits and it felt like I was just getting closer and closer to that state. Mm. And so you, you mentioned body composition there, Sophie. In terms of the actual like kilo number on the scales, did you end up at a heavier weight or about the same weight but just sort of different body composition? Can you remember? Probably about the same. The difference, it might have been a kilo difference. Um, so it might have might have gone from 65 to 64, something yeah. like that. It wasn't a significant difference. Um, it was more I could see that I was building lean muscle mass, um, particularly um, in my quads. Um and probably a little bit uh, in my arms as well yeah. because of that sprinting action. Yeah, yeah. And were you, like when you started off in the NRS sort of prior to all this happening, like in mm-hmm. 2013, had you gone in sort of as a sprinter? No, not at all. <laughs> um, I because I'd come, I think because I come to cycling so late in life, I really, prior to joining the NRS, I had done very little racing. Um, so I really didn't know. I guess what my specialty would be for want of a better term. And in 2013, I was um, the team I was, I was on boss racing then and I was the team climber rather than the team sprinter. Um, and I only focused on the sprinting after doing that sprint against that I mentioned earlier about Kim that I sprinted against Kimberly and I can remember ringing the DS and chatting to her that night and saying, oh, this happened in the sprint and I'm really happy with how I performed and having a chat to her and she said, well, Soph, you can pick. There's some people who are sprinters and climbers and they're freaks, <laughs> but you need to pick one or the other. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I think that just gave me the confidence to pursue that further. Mm. And I'm wondering too because obviously like I guess the way you you think about maybe body composition and then Therefore, the nutrition that goes along with that is potentially a very different mindset when you're focused on being a climber as opposed to focused on being a sprinter. Um, and, and so that that possibly helps as well. Definitely. Once I decided to focus on the criteria, my training changed significantly. It was all about lots of very short, um, intense intervals because that replicates the national criterion. And... I couldn't have recovered from those um, the way I had been eating before. I don't. I doubt that I could have even performed um, many of the sessions that I was able to f- perform in the six months leading up to the national criteria. Mm. Yeah. So sort of finding your your niche, sort of physiologically, I suppose, has, had really had a flow on benefit, not only from a training point of view, but I guess then that how nutrition relates to that as well. Definitely. Yeah. So there was a really nice um, bookend, I guess, to this experience for you. Um, can you tell us about what happened at the start of 2016? Yeah. Um, so in 2016, in January of that year, I won the National Criterium Championship. Um, it was a fantastic race. Um, I just 
I can still remember the feeling of being on the start line, just feeling like, yep, this is just going to be my day, um, which might sound a bit arrogant, but uh, <laughs> sort of just something you had, you kind of felt within your bones almost. Um, and I, again, it was, I just felt like I could just drop into that flow state where I knew I was, I had the energy to go into the race and perform well. I knew I'd done the training and there's those physical performance aspects, but then I also, because I felt like they were taken care of, it allowed me to focus on the race and really read it well, see what was happening. And I could read the brakes. Like, you know, um, if someone up the road on their own, I was like, well, that's not going to stick. And towards the end of it, two riders left the peloton, um, which I wasn't concerned about. But then when a third rider bridged across, I knew that this was, there was just something in my head. I was like, this is the break I need to be in. This is the one that's going to win. Um, and I, like I said, it was just, I was able to really focus on that mental side of racing because it felt like everything else was just taken care of in the background and in the lead up to it. Mm, absolutely. And I think like from memory, I think the break, as you said, I think it ended up with, with four of you in there and two of them were, were green edge riders and, you know, they were obviously tipped because I don't know how many riders they had in that race, probably 10 or something. It was sort of green edge versus everyone else. And then. Um, yeah, to, to beat them in the sprint must have been pretty satisfying. It, it was. Uh, um, it's interesting, though. I don't actually remember uh, starting my sprint at all in that race. It was like instinct just kicked in yep. and off I went. Um, and I can remember, I think, from the finish line, at, let's say it's 300 metres, I can remember getting to 200 metres to go and passing two riders, but I've got this gap of 100 metres where I just went and don't really remember much <laughs> else about that. Um, and then I remember passing, uh, Lizzie, my former teammate just, uh, before the finish line. But, um, it was a, it was a really satisfying race because it just felt like everything came together on the day perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, I remember the sort of the reaction in, in the media and in cycling circles to like that was like, oh, where, where, where does she come from kind of thing, like coming out of nowhere, so to speak. But, you know, as, as everyone says in sport, like people don't come out of nowhere. There's always a backstory to that. And, and, you know, it's clear that, you know, you'd sort of targeted that six to eight months out from the event, target, you know, train very specifically for that race. Um, and things that come together from both a nutrition and a training point of view, which sort of culminated in that. And as you said, that headspace and, and I guess even, you know, coming in and you'd only sort of focused on sprinting for that last sort of eight, nine months before that race, but you'd already got to that stage where, you know, being able to read the race tactically as well as the, the physical side of things all came together in that quite short space of time, I guess. Yeah, it did. And I think as well with criterion racing, there isn't that much time to really refuel whilst you're in the race. So probably now when I look back, I think about um, the nutritional strategy that we implemented. And for me, it wasn't, whilst my fuel on the bike was important in my training, for me, it was really just increasing the calories across the board Mm. in my general day-to-day diet. Um, I felt like that was the thing that just allowed me to go on and have the success that I did. Okay. Yep. And then following that, I think you went over to the States that that year in their summer um, and did quite a lot of racing and had some success over there too from memory. Had a little bit of success over there. It was um, a bit, I found it quite different to racing in the NRS um, and I did really miss, um, I guess, the support network that you have at home as well. Mm. Um, There's a lot more travel involved over there. Um, And yeah, I only did it for the one season. Yeah. 
Cool. All right, well, let's, I guess, I'll bring all of this together. I guess thinking back on that sort of period of your cycling career, what, what I guess, I mean, we sort of talked about it a little bit, the things that you've sort of learned from that experience. And I guess if you went back to 2013 and had to start again, what, what do you think you'd do differently knowing what you do now? Um, I'd certainly be eating more food, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I would, I'd be looking for um, more expert advice, really, um, to make sure that I was balancing um, my training load with uh, my energy intake. Um, it was probably more naivety than anything else, but I thought I had it okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it was a it was a slippery slope and it's only sort of when you're getting close to crashing that you really realise, no, I've done this very wrong and yep. I do need to really get that help. And I think now with the athletes that I coach, we constantly emphasise the importance of, recovery when you finish you get go home you get something to eat and sleeping well as well yeah yep and we talked to i think with kate last week about the fact that i guess energy deficiency has sort of become a topic that people or and particularly athletes have been much more comfortable coming forward and talking about probably even just the last three or four years which has been really good because it's created this awareness um and you know kate was saying you know even amongst the the female portion of the NRS Peloton. It's something that people are discussing more and, and more conscious of, um, which probably wasn't the case, you know, five years ago. But, you know, as a member member of the cycling community at that time and obviously now as a coach, do you feel that, that your experience and what you went through was quite unique or fairly common amongst other people in the sport? Um, it's probably hard to say. Um, like you said, it's certainly becoming more and more discussed nowadays. Um, but I, look, I am also a very private person, so it wasn't something that I discussed particularly broadly either. And I was, I guess for that reason, I feel quite lucky that I found the assistance that I needed. Um, I feel like that was almost just a bit of a fluke, um, in that those contacts were put forward to me. Um, I think sometimes in cycling there's, you know, and in any sport as well, um, People look at someone and they go, well, you don't look like a cyclist or you don't look like a runner or you don't look like a weightlifter or whatever it might be. And in cycling, we also have the term, we often refer to power to weight. Mm. And if someone mentions, oh, you know, cycling's all about power to weight, I don't know, if you're eating a croissant at the time, um, it does play in your mind a bit and it sort of does make you go, well, you don't seem to be you're mentioning this whilst I'm eating, um, it sort of does imp- imply that you might be thinking I shouldn't be um, consuming what I'm consuming. And it, I think for me, looking back as well, I'd probably reflect on those comments and go it's probably more a reflection of what's going on for them rather than what they think I should be doing as well. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, and final question that just came into my head then did you ever get a sense or, or to a point where you felt like you could sort of intrinsically feel like when you were eating enough, like you had this sort of sense or, and, and what did that kind of feel like? Um, I did. It, it took a while though because it was a fairly significant shift and I think there was a lot more protein in what I had been had started to consume when I got help from you, Alan. Um, so it didn't happen straight away. I remember feeling very, very full for quite a period. Um, 
And then once I guess it normalized for want of a better word, it wasn't so much that I could feel when it was right, but then I could sense when it was wrong. Mm -hmm. So once I knew what healthy was, then if I got to, I can recall having an afternoon at work where I thought, oh, I'm suddenly feeling very tired and just having a think over the last few days and I instantly was like, yep, I just haven't eaten enough here Mm -hmm. and I need to make sure I'm getting that protein back in my afternoon snack as well. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, And any other final advice um, that we sort of haven't talked about so far for listeners? So they might be uh, athletes themselves, you know, runners, cyclists, triathletes. They might be parents of of younger athletes. They might be coaches or some other sort of support staff that that work in and around uh, sport. Any other bits of advice or or things that you, you think is important for them to know about this topic? I think the greatest way to avoid reds as much as possible is um, to really have those open conversations with athletes and coaches and parents and I think the education piece that we're now seeing happen is going to be really important for that but open dialogue um, between coaches and athletes I think is just a really really important thing to avoid it. Yeah cool and you finding like as a coach now yourself that that is becoming easier to have that conversation with athletes and parents? Definitely. So um, I coach, um, everyone I coach is under the age of 18. So um, we sort of try and balance everything we're doing with constantly having fun and making sure there is enjoyment. Um, And something that we try and focus on is just even asking um, our athletes, how was school today? Mm. So that we know how their energy level is just coming into that day's training session as well. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I might hand it over to Steph now uh, to finish us off with our bonus round. All right, cool. Um, so this is where the listeners get to learn a little bit more about you, Soph. And, um, yeah, like apart from um, being a really good uh, cyclist. Um, so favourite thing to do when you've got me time? Oh, my favourite feeling is when... It's a little bit of a cold day and you're sitting in the sun and the sun warms your skin. It's a good one. It's a good one. Um, and one thing on your bucket list you are yet to do. It's a good question, actually. Um, I don't know. I don't really think of bucket list items that much. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing you've been hanging out to do that COVID has not let you do. Uh, look, I'd like to do an Ironman. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. Okay. <laughs> I was thinking I'd know, go travelling, relax somewhere, but we'll go straight into an Ironman. Oh, look, that's, I think the Ironman's been on my bucket list for probably over a decade, really. Um, I did well, triathlon you, yeah. before cycling and um, okay. it's, yeah, yeah, I just think that would be a really nice thing to tick off. Yeah, yeah. Well, you got the cycling. Now you, I've heard that you're doing the running and then, yeah, swimming as well. Running's my weakest link. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> need to work on that. Well, now you've just, you mentioned before, you've got a, um, a little puppy border collie. So I'm sure they'll be able to help you out with the running. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> Full of energy full of energy um well this might already be answered then because I was going to say what's a choose a different one then so what's a sport you've always wanted to try but you haven't had the chance 
Rock climbing. So you've never done rock climbing? No. And I just think it looks looks good. Like quite a mental and physical challenge and really different in its dynamics and how you have to move your body. Mm, not scared of heights then. Well, I know I'm roped in. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And is there somewhere you've always wanted to ride but you've never had the chance? Um, Might sound a bit mun... No, Tasmania. I've never Mm. taken a bike down to Tasmania. It's a beautiful state and I'd really just love to take a bike down there and do a good ride down there. Yeah, yep. Um, and do you live by any piece of advice or, um, or motto? Um, I'll borrow someone else's quote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think it's uh, Maya Angelou. Um, her quote is, people will never forget, oh, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, one of my favourite quotes. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, thanks so much for your time, Sophie. It's great to hear a bit of your take on this this topic and um, hopefully some of the things that that people can learn from that um, as as athletes themselves or, as we said, you know, coaches or or parents as well. Um, It's it's a really important topic, one that we need to talk about, and it's a great follow-up to our previous topic, which was that question of, you know, does leaner equal faster? So um, I guess talking about what the consequences of, of trying to get you know, consistently leaner um, can potentially be. So thanks for that. Um, obviously great to see, you know, how things were able to, to turn around in, in quite a short space of time in, in your career. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, best of luck for, for the Ironman. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a bucket list item. <laughs> it's not, not in the foreground right now. <laughs> no worries. Thanks, awesome. Sophie. Thank you. Thanks, guys. That was great. Thank you very much, Sophie, um, for yeah giving us an insight into your experience. And um, I will hand it over to Alan to do his amazing summary. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, yeah, no, I agree. Fantastic to hear Sophie's story. I mean, I haven't spoken to her or had had really anything to do with Sophie for years now because she's obviously been out of racing and. Um, great to sort of go back and, and look over what happened during that time and, and how it kind of worked out for her. And, um, you know, I remember, you know, I wasn't in Ballarat when she won that national title, but, you know, seeing that result come through and just thinking how amazing that was that, you know, 12 months mm. prior to that, she could barely ride more than a recovery ride. Mm. And then she was able to turn it around so quickly. And I think that was one of the themes of this is, you know, just how quickly some of those performance decrements from underfueling can turn themselves around once you start fueling your body properly um, and getting enough energy in to, to get all the systems kind of back up and firing. And yes, you know, as Margot said, things like, you know, the amenorrhea, if that's an issue for people, um, you know, recovering a menstrual cycle might take much longer. Uh, obviously, if you've got, you know, reduced bone density, that's going to take years or maybe never fully recover, depending on how old you are at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of those other things in terms of performance can actually recover relatively quickly um, with, with adequate energy and, um, you know, introducing obviously things like adequate protein for recovery from training and, and those kinds of things as well, which we talked about with, um, with Isabella Russo 
um, several weeks ago. So yeah, I think that that was the first thing I got from that is, and, and I remember at the time thinking, you know, geez, she's you know turned that around really quickly. You know, in just a matter of a couple of months, she was going from, you know, being fatigued after a coffee shop ride to being back and, and racing an NRS race. And and to be honest, I had my doubts whether you know she'd gone back too early, mm. um, but you know clearly it. It worked for her, which is which is great. Mm. Um, I think the second thing I picked out of that, uh, we talked a little bit about it, I think, in the episode with Kate Perry and also going back a few weeks with Gary Slater is that um, I, I guess that body composition that people assume they need to be for a particular performance um, and that always it's not always what people think it is. You know, obviously the body composition that you're at that makes you a, you know, a high-performing athlete is not necessarily what quote-unquote looks like a high-performing athlete whatever that even means. Mm. Um, and so, you know, obviously it's, it's a matter of finding the body composition that's going to work for you from a health and performance point of view, as, as Kate mentioned. But also the fact that, you know, there is, you know, realities, things like gravity. If, you know, you're going to be a climbing cyclist, you are going to have to be relatively light to be successful as, you know, and, but still be able to put out the power. And I think the point here is that, you know, not everyone is going to be, um, you know, genetically built to be able to do that uh, and to do that well. Um, you know, if, they, if they're going to have to, you know, continuously undercut what they're eating to try and get to that body composition, then probably that role in the sport is not the right role for them. And, you know, Sophie mentioned that, you know, when she started her career in the NRS, she thought she was going to be a climber. And it wasn't until she'd sort of had that period um, where the training had really dropped down and she um, started fueling better again and got back to training and then just happened to find herself in a sprint randomly halfway through a race that she suddenly realized that she could sprint and from there she geared her training towards that her body composition you know changed very much that way she gained a lot of muscle and, and power um, because of that um, and then you know that culminated in winning a title which all came down to a sprint at an end of an hour's racing as opposed to going up a really big hill you know over your half an hour, an hour of, of hill climbing. So um, I think that's a really important point is that, you know, yes, this body composition might be optimal for this particular role, but if you're genetic, if you're fighting against your genetics to try and get there, you, you're going to have to underfuel to do that and you're not going to perform anyway. So um, it, it's probably, you're, you're kind of fighting a losing battle in that case. And, you know, it's, I, I guess the way I like to describe it to people is that there's some people that are five foot and you know you're not going to be an NBA basketball player because you're not tall enough sorry that's just you know you don't have the height it's just genetics and and it's the same with this we tend to think as you know um you know leaner or, or more muscular is something that we can infinitely alter um no matter what our genetics say as opposed to our height which we can't but you know to some degree that they're going to have a lot of similarities there and we should um probably stop fighting that as, as much and um, because it's only causing problems both in terms of physical and, and mental health a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. I think, um, yeah, fantastic story and, and thanks so much, Sophie, for, for sharing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think um, as we've, we've seen in, the, uh, in our shout-outs um, from people and, and their feedback, um, even though sometimes we may know some of these things um, and we may be doing some of these things and we know it's not necessarily great or healthy, um, sometimes it can be good and it can just, um, I don't know, kind of always hearing different people's perspective and experiences can be can be helpful and useful. So um, hopefully some of the experiences that we've been able to share with um 
with Sophie, Kate, and um, also listening to Margot and, and even Gary um, can can help people, um, listeners, make some more positive and educated um, changes, um, yeah, in the right direction, hopefully, for them. Yeah. Um, and if people do need any help and are fighting that um, battle and, and, yeah, struggling with these issues, um, then we'd um, highly recommend to um, go and see, uh, yeah, like a, a qualified health professional, um, you know, whether that be a, a sports dietitian, a sports physician, um, uh, that, yeah, just to, to help uh, put you in the, on, the, on the right path and provide mm. you with the right support. Definitely, yeah. Mm. Cool. So uh, we will... Also, um, just with our, our socials, um, if you do have any questions, yeah, please send us questions either to, um, we're on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Um, and if you do want to listen to us, we're on all your popular um, podcast platforms. The next episode we have is we're up to our um, 50th anniversary. We're 25A, Alan. And will we tell the listeners what it is finally? I think we'll put them out of out of their misery, Steph. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell them or am I telling them? You are telling them because I think you should break the uh, really good news. Yeah, awesome. So this is one we've been looking forward to for, for quite a long time and we're uh, recording this outro for the podcast just before we actually mm-hmm. jump online and do the interview. Mm-hmm. Um, so our guest is going to be Professor Andy Jones from the University of Exeter. And some people will know that name and probably know what we're talking about. Um, But our topic is going to be nutrition for breaking two. So Andy um, was was one of the main physiologists involved with the the testing for the Nike Breaking Two project with Elliot Kipchoge, um, Lisa DeCesar and uh, Zerzane Tedesi. So... Yeah, really looking forward to, to chatting to Andy about the Breaking Two project. He also worked previously with Paula Radcliffe um, mm. through the, the early parts yeah. of her career and when she set her uh, women's marathon world record as well. So, uh, yeah, really looking forward to, to talking to Andy about the work he did with, with the original Nike Breaking Two project and um, I guess some of the physiology but also how that flows into the nutrition because I think a lot's been talked about it, the, the testing and the shoes and all those sorts of things. But I think less has been talked about the nutrition planning and, and what went into that and, and how that was executed for that project. Um, so, yeah, really looking forward to, to chatting to him. And, and also, you know, what are some of the things that, that we can learn as, um, you know, non-goats that could potentially apply to our own running, cycling or triathlon? What can we learn from the likes of Ellie Kipchoge and, and Paula Radcliffe? Mm, yeah, yeah, cannot wait um, for this one. Um, and, I, yeah, I think um, it's going to be a really popular one um, for, for everyone. Yep. And it's going to be our first mm. birthday of the podcast as well. Woo! I know. Been doing this for a year together, Al. Yep. Yep. You yep. Haven't killed each other yet. Duck. Yep. Yeah, well, it probably <laughs> helps with uh, COVID. We haven't been able to kill each other. <laughs> well, virtually maybe. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's been fun. It's been fun. Mm. Yeah, um, absolutely. Awesome. Cool. Well, uh, we will leave our listeners with um, with this podcast and we will see you next week. Will do. See you then, everyone. See ya.